Hiawatha. My name is Chris Walker. I'm one of the pastors at this church. If you're visiting for the first time today, welcome to, to our church. It's actually kind of a great uh, day to be here in terms of our uh, preaching and our, our sermon series because we're starting over on a new series in the book of Acts. I'll throw it up there, but in the book of Acts, um, we'll talk about um, this uh, subtitle, The Church is Born, actually a little bit more in coming weeks, uh, but that's, that's, our, that's our working subtitle in a series that uh, is uh, a book, really, that's kind of hard to depict in a sentence. And so, but I think that's one of the big threads in this book, uh, thematically, if you're brand new to the Bible or brand new to, uh, to the book. But um, what I want to do today, uh, these first sermons we usually give over to, uh, to a, a biblical book or to a sermon series are uh, very introductory. And so I want to talk over the big question of what is Acts. And so if you're brand new, again, brand new to the Bible or not a, even a Christian yet, that's great. Glad you're here. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about it and kind of catch up to speed a little bit, or if you've read it a lot, remind you of some things that are easy, easy to forget, and some, I think, ground, kind of groundbreaking or just um, things that the, the book is predicated on or, or built on. So uh, we'll spend a little bit of time in that, but really, um, these are, we always say this, but this, these aren't really classes. Uh, we don't, like, just teach on Sunday mornings. We also want to preach, and so we're going to preach the first five verses as well of the book of Acts and get there uh, hopefully pretty quickly here and spend most of our time in Acts 1, chapter 1, verses 1 to, uh, 1 to 5. And so today is just an introduction to the book of Acts. It'll be a little bit different, kind of hodgepodgey in terms of the stuff we talk about. Uh, it is, uh, the book of Acts is part two to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, I'll get to that here in a second, but for those of you who are aware of what the Gospel of Luke is, uh, it's kind of the second part of a two-set, uh, two-part volume, essentially, a two-volume set. So, um, so first, what is, what is Acts? Um, Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. Going to get your bearings there. It's right before Romans, right after John in the New Testament. Uh, it is the last historical book of the Bible uh, by genre. So um, the Bible consists of different types of books, like there are history books and there are po- poetical poetry books. There are apocalyptic books. There are letters in the Bible. This is the last one of the history books of the Bible. So I mean spanning all the way to the Old Testament as well into the New this is the, the last history book. The rest of the Bible, or the New Testament, is letters written to the church uh, in different kinds of, uh, they, they vary in terms of like length and size and type, but they're essentially all letters. Um, Luke is the author. So the first thing I want to talk about here is Luke wrote the book in the first century, just decades after Jesus rose from the dead. Now, Lucan authorship is not really argued. There's a, um, a plethora of internal and external evidence for this. If you want more on that or interested in things like um, date and occasion and authorship and all that stuff. I, was, I meant to mention this earlier, but if you want more than what I'm going to say here, uh, please talk to me. I'd love to pass, over, uh, pass on more stuff to you to read, or we can just talk if you want to talk over coffee about this stuff. Uh, I'm not going to spend a ton here, but still a few important things. Um, but anyway, it was written just decades after Jesus rose from the dead by this guy named Luke. Luke was a, an associate or friend of the apostle Paul's, who's also called Saul, in the New Testament. He actually is the guy, he's one of the main characters of this book. We'll meet him a little bit later on and look at his conversion story in Acts chapter 9. He comes up in Acts 7 as well, but Acts chapter 9 is when uh, he basically converts from being a Christian murderer to a Christian himself and who writes a half of the New Testament. So really cool, kind of paradigmatic conversion story that we'll spend a lot of time in. Um, so he was a, Luke was a friend of this guy, Paul, Luke was a Middle Eastern man, probably goes without saying, but he was not a white American. So it's, just, it's good for us to kind of have our bearings here in terms of like just the global aspect of Christianity. He was a Middle Eastern, non-white American man, who, and every biblical author was. So it's, it's not like saying, saying a lot, but it's good for us to remember this, uh, the, the international feel of 
the, the Bible and how it was comprised. He was a doctor, a physician, according to Colossians 4.14, who, who likely knew Mark. Mark was another one of the gospel writers. We say gospel, capital G, gospel means um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament. And so we say gospels, kind of capital G gospel, we mean that uh, section of the, the New Testament. So the, the books that kind of give themselves over to Jesus' birth and his ministry, his baptism, his healings, his teachings, and ultimately his death and resurrection and ascension. So uh, the Gospel of Mark um, and the guy who wrote that book uh, was a peer with Luke. Uh, Luke was a Gentile. He was a non-Jewish guy, the only Gentile author of a biblical book, which is kind of interesting as well. And he was in that, it pains to show how the gospel was for all, not just Jewish people who believed in Jesus Christ and who, uh, who were Messianic Jews, I guess, for lack of a better phrase. Not just them, but for, for, the, for the nations. So God always had the nations in mind when humanity fell away from him. This is just a big component to the biblical storyline that Luke, just kind of by way of not being Jewish, uh, Luke is a Greek name, uh, he kind of just, even by way of just that, um, the etymology of his name and so forth um, tells us this, all right, and more than that too. All right, second, uh, Acts, so I mentioned this before, but Acts is part two to the Gospel of Luke, so it's a two-volume set, so it spans all the way from John the Baptist, who was the final prophet or predecessor to Jesus, all the way through Jesus' life and his death and resurrection, all the way through then, this is into Acts, the early decades of the church, uh, to when ultimately the Gospel reached Rome at the end of Paul's life. That's the, at the end of Acts 28, so we'll be there next December. So uh, you can, yeah, it's going to take a while, but um, if you're looking forward to that, you're going to be waiting, <laughs> waiting a while, but you can read it uh, before that, obviously. You should read it, uh, but it's, we'll, we'll come to that uh, later. So it, it spans all the way from John the Baptist through Jesus' life to the end of Paul's life when the gospel reached Rome, when Rome was the center of cultural and political life in the ancient world, and so it's a big deal that it got there. Uh, but in terms of length, then, these are two big books. Luke is a, is a long book, it's 24 chapters, and Acts is 28 chapters, it's a long book as well. If you just look at ink, so just kind of ink given over to these two books, Luke wrote a third of the New Testament. And so it's kind of interesting, like, we should know who this guy is. That's why I spend some time on some biographical things here. He's a pretty significant guy in terms of uh, how he contributed to the Bible as we know it today and to Christian theology uh, obviously helped by the Holy Spirit. It's not his idea, but still, uh, he's a guy just like us, you know, who was inspired, changed, moved, exposed to these things in different ways, and he wrote these things down for, for our benefit as God desired. So that's the second thing. The third thing is then, um, Acts then basically is the story of the birth of the church. If you know that, there's a lot to the book of Acts narratively, but if you know that, um, that Acts is basically about the story of the birth of the church after Jesus ascends to heaven and dies for the sins of the world and ascends to heaven. You know quite a bit. And so we'll talk about more, but if you're brand new to it, just understand at least that's the main content. And so Acts, then, the word means the acts or activities of the apostles who were the friends or disciples of Jesus who became like the first pastors of, of the Jerusalem church, but also and especially the acts of the Holy Spirit and the acts of Jesus and the acts of the word of God itself, which takes on this kind of personified personality in the book. We'll come to that later on in the series. And so, um, but just a few big themes to whet your appetite a little bit and to expose you to this if you're brand new to Acts. Some of the big themes we'll be looking at in this series. Uh, one, Jesus' final days on earth before his ascension to heaven. We'll look at Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit, uh, who, who would fill and empower uh, Christian ministry and 
be that final kind of sign of sealing people's salvation and showing that there's no separation now between people who believe in Jesus and God himself. We'll look at the first Christian sermon ever. We'll look at miracles, but the primacy, the the greater importance of word-based ministry or preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, gospel just being the good news of his death and resurrection. We'll look at the birth of the church, uh, which is our subtitle to the series again, but also this question of what is the church. It'll be a big thing in the series. The martyrdom of certain Christians, the conversion of Saul, who is Paul, the murderer of Christians. We talked about him. The, the first Christian council ever, which is a pretty cool thing in Acts 15, which helps us understand how Jesus replaced Old Testament law with himself. That'll come up a little bit later today as well. We'll see glimpses of that, but the first council that met to formally kind of just say, hey, things are different now in the New Testament era. We'll also see how the gospel expands outside of Jerusalem to Rome. I mentioned that. Church planting is a big part of uh, this book as well. So how conversions led to churches and how individualistic Christians was not the goal of God uh, in his kingdom, but rather communities like this. Uh, So we'll talk a lot about that, actually. And then in all of this, then, I don't have this up here, but in all of this, we'll see how the story of the early church is a part of the greater story of biblical history. So spanning way back to the Old Testament, all the way through Jesus' life, and and the Old Testament led to Jesus' life, it predicted it, it foreshadowed it, it typified it, looked ahead to his life, and especially his death and resurrection, which is the climax of the whole Bible, but also how we're then a part of that same story. And so it's narrative, it's a part of a, a, a kind of collection of narratives in the Bible which look like they're segmented sometimes, but they're really not. And so we'll look back a lot to the Old Testament, back a lot to the life of Jesus and his teachings and his death and resurrection especially, that'll be a part of today. Um, but also the way Luke wrote about these things, because the way Luke wrote about those things himself sounds a lot like the way he writes about the life of the church, because it's the same author. And so we'll look at the Gospel, Luke, Volume 1, it's kind of context for Volume 2, which is Acts a lot in this series. And, and more of that today, to, if that's brand new, um, we'll clarify some more things. But this fourth and final thing to this question, occasion and motive, so why did he write? Um, sometimes this is clear in the Bible, sometimes it's not. I think with Luke it's pretty clear. And, and to answer this question, I'm going to go back to Luke, so the Gospel of Luke, Volume 1, so before Acts, Volume 1 of this two-volume set. Luke 1, 1 to 4, he writes this guy named Theophilus, and I'll talk about him later, but because he comes up again in Acts 1. But Luke 1, 1 to 4, this is how Luke begins. Verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So a couple of quick things here on occasion and motive that I think speak to this whole volume, so it speaks to Acts as well, is uh, first note how this is a really cool thing as we look at the, the character and person of Luke. Luke was a very careful observer of things. He was a historian. He was really an academic in a lot of ways, a Christian, is a doctor, and a Christian who cared to write these things down with the help of others who saw them firsthand with their own eyes, so people like Mark, who I mentioned before, but also the help of the Holy Spirit of God. And this is what Christians believe about the Bible. We, we, we believe uh, people penned the words, but the Holy Spirit inspired them. And so in that ways, they're, they're accurate, they're perfect, they're truth-filled, they're God-intended. 
And so then he says here, though, it's a really interesting phrase at the bottom in, or in verse 4. He says, so that we would have certainty. And so Christians here, Luke clearly is a Christian guy, uh, like many of us in the room are. Christians aren't just concerned uh, or, excuse me, care about truth and history, not speculation and myth. So Christians, with the idea of certainty here, we care about truth and history, not mythology and not speculation. And we also care about accomplished things. So Christians aren't, as he says here too, like he says, we've heard about these things that Jesus has done and that have been accomplished among us in verse 1. So we, we care and are concern, about and are concerned with events, but also things that were accomplished through those events. In other words, Jesus has accomplished salvation for sinners, for us. And we can also know for certain then what transpired. This is Luke's motives. We can know for certain what transpired and we can put our trust or faith or dependence in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. That's his motive. That's why he's writing this to this one guy, Theophilus, who is like basically a picture of all of us. It's not just for him. Originally it was, but it is for all people, really for all time, wherever we're at. So, all right, so that's basically a little bit on occasion motive as well. We'll, we'll talk more in Acts 1 here in a second because it comes out, I think, afresh, and we'll talk about some of these themes about certainty and about Luke has this um, scientific way of looking at Scripture, but I think Acts 1 also has this kind of poetic, linguistic way of talking about the gospel as well. And so if you, if you lean kind of sciencey or lean a little bit more analytical, uh, Luke's a great guy. Luke's a great guy to read in the Bible. But if you lean poetic and linguistic or symbolic, there's a lot of that too as God sort of in, intended through him. And so we'll see kind of in the obvious, the analytical, but also in the not-so-obvious today, we'll learn a lot about Christ and a lot about uh, the gospel itself just by the way he introduces the whole book. So that's, that's the main goal. So Acts 1, 1 to 5, let's dive right in and spend the rest of our time looking at this. So uh, verse 1, here we go. In the first book, which remember is the gospel of Luke, so in the first book, O Theophilus, there's his name again, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. All right, so a quick word on timeline, especially if you're privy to the end of, of Luke, if you've read that, and even just the way this is worded, it's a little bit anachronistic, and so he's not trying to be super chrono chronological here, he overlaps, and so the timeline's a bit funky. Basically, he's overlapping the end of Luke with the beginning of Acts, and so it, it, it's not super important to understand that, but it's just the way this is worded, and if you've read, read Luke recently, it might sound like, hey, I thought Jesus already, already was raised. These next two weeks, he's going to go back and talk more about Christ's ascension, into heaven, and more about what he said to his disciples when he was with them for those 40 days in between his resurrection and his ascension uh, into, into heaven. So we'll be overlapping a bit before going on to some brand new material, kind of like week three or so from, from now. With that said, though, it's still kind of unique the way he writes. All right, so today what I want to do is talk about just three quick things, glimpses of the gospel in Acts 1, 1 to 5. So I, I kind of talked about that before. There's different ways that he does this, and the text kind of gives itself over to the, the analytical, but also the poetic. Glimpses of the gospel. So what, what do we learn about Christianity? What do we learn about Jesus here? 
what do we learn about the kingdom of God, what it means to be a Christian, uh, the, the, the center of the faith, and then what's peripheral, what's sort of outer ring, or what's bullseye. We'll talk some about that as well. There's a lot here. Actually, there's a lot more to what I'm going to say, but uh, some of the big things uh, we'll, we'll dive into now. So three big things. If you want to follow along on that insert I put in the worship folder, feel free if you're a note taker or just want to know where we're going, but this will all be on, on screen. So, All right, glimpses of the gospel in Acts 1, 1 to 5. The first thing is pretty quick. But just note how this book begins. It's really cool. It just starts with a guy telling another guy about this Jesus guy. That's how, that's how it starts. That's really what the whole book is. It's one guy talking to someone else, real people who really lived 2,000 years ago, uh, Luke, talking to Theophilus about Jesus. And so he says, hey, I've got a second book here. I have some more, more not more important, but additional things to talk to you about. And I've been very careful in my observance of them. I've talked to eyewitnesses, I've written these down, and, and in Acts' case, he's traveled with Paul, and so he's been himself, uh, first-hand eyewitnesses to a lot of these things that come up later in the book, and so and he writes them down. And so that's how the book begins, a guy telling another guy about this Jesus guy. And, and it's also then secondarily important to see that this account, Luke's account, doesn't end with Jesus' death, but continues with his resurrection and ascension. So in other words... The point to Acts isn't Luke saying, hey, Theophilus, Jesus, this Jesus guy lived an amazing life, but now that he's dead, I think he left behind some important principles for living that we need to copy. He's not starting the book that way, nor coming even a million miles from that type of premise. Instead, he's saying he was raised up. He was resurrected and ascended up to heaven. In other words, he's alive. So, the resurrection, then, is the basis for this whole book. Acts wouldn't exist. Christianity wouldn't exist if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. And so, more clearly elsewhere, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, the guy who used to murder Christians, now writes that if, if the resurrection didn't happen, then the whole thing is a sham. Like, Christianity is, there's no foundation for it anymore. That's another thing I won't spin off on for time's sake today, but um, the resurrection here, the whole book's predicated on this, right? The, the resurrection's the basis for the, the whole book. And we even see in the, in the um, first few verses, he says, my first book, Luke, the Gospel of Luke, dealt with all that Jesus began to do, which implies this second book will deal with all that Jesus will continue to do, which again precludes the fact that he's dead. And I think evangelistically, just speaking for a second to those of you in the room who are Christians, uh, and if you're not yet, you can still learn a lot about Christianity here and what I'm going to say, but evangelistically, I think there's something to emulate here, and that is, at the end of the day, we bring an empty tomb to people. This is the hope that we bring. This is the, the core of the message. We, we bring an empty tomb, not a list of moral commands, just like Luke here. We, we follow Luke's example. Luke is bringing a resurrection. He's bringing Jesus is alive. He's bringing Jesus has suffered, and he, he showed himself alive by many proofs. He, he brings truth and history married with theology to people and saying that all of that together is the center and that's the good news. So we bring an empty tomb, not a list of moral commands. And whether you're a Christian here today or not, the good news is the same for all of you. And that is Jesus is alive and he loves you. And he's died for our sins and overwhelmed death on our behalf as a human being who is also God. So more on that here in, in just a second. That's a big thing I want to make sure is clear today. All right, the second thing is, the second gospel glimpse is verse 3. 
He presented, Jesus presented himself alive to his friends, the disciples, and many others as well, after his suffering by many proofs. And so two things here, I want to reverse engineer this, looking at the last clause first, after suffering, or that, I should say, just that, that middle clause there, after suffering first. And so I want to point us back to Luke. That's the first volume, remember, that's context for this whole book. So when the phrase after suffering is used, that's referring to Jesus' crucifixion. So it points back to things like this. We could look at, you know, almost volumes of stuff on this because so much is given over to Jesus' sufferings in the gospel accounts. But this is one segment or a couple of segments from Luke chapter 23. It says, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, those who had arrested and who had flogged and tried Jesus and found him guilty even though he was innocent, and are leading him away to be crucified. It says they came to a place that is called the skull, and there they crucified him. That's what this is pointing back to. So he suffered through crucifixion unto the point of death. And then it also says things like this a few verses later. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and he breathed his last. And so the last few moments of Jesus' life on the cross as he was dying, the curtain of the Old Testament temple, which is the center of kind of like um, cultic and worship and religious life for the Jews, which is where God said, I will sort of symbolically dwell inside this temple. And there was a curtain that separated God from the rest of the world, not just the rest of the temple or the rest of Jerusalem, but the rest of the world. Everyone else is on the other side of the curtain and God is on this side and there was separation. At the moment of Jesus's death, that curtain was ripped in half and it implies that God's hands did it because it doesn't say how it was done. God ripped it in half himself. And Jesus' blood was the way it occurred. And so all the Gospels do this. Uh, by the way, if you're new to this, the Gospel writers write about historically Jesus' death, but then they theologically write about it and say, this is why it matters, and this is what was accomplished for us through the death. And so it didn't, it's not just history, it is, but it's also theology because it's, it's spiritual. It did something, it matters for us. And so the fact that the curtain was ripped, so the thing that, that separated us from God, this, this physical curtain that, you know, was, was like 30 feet tall and like 6 or 12 inches thick, I think, this super thick curtain, was ripped clean in half when Jesus was panting on that cross for air right before he died, shows us that Jesus' bloody death took away our sins. And that is to say he took away the barrier between us and God because he died once and for all for people who are separated from him. All right, so that's looking back to these types of things. Then going back to Acts, though, it also says, after his suffering, he presented himself alive by many proofs. And so he didn't just rise, he chose to present himself to people. I'll come back to that one, because that's pretty cool. But also through many proofs. This is the analytical, sort of scientific side of uh, doctor side, physician side, academic side of Luke, where he says through many proofs. Meaning... It was important for Jesus to be seen alive in the flesh. Luke 24 is helpful here. Again, the first volume. It says, they, Jesus' disciples, when Jesus appeared after he died and was raised again, he appeared to people. And so when he said as he appeared to his disciples, it says they were startled and frightened. They were startled and they were frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Jesus said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. 
And so what Jesus is doing here is he's proving his resurrection by physically appearing. He proves it by eating with people because spirits or ghosts or hallucinations don't actually eat food. And so he proves it by eating with people. He shows his scars and his hands and his feet and his side to people. And in one case, to Thomas, one of his disciples, he says, touch them. Know that it's me. You, you couldn't do this. This isn't like um, this long-lost twin of Jesus that just showed up, you know, and uh, without scars. Like, no, it's the actual Jesus that, which is a theory, by the way. But anyway, um, it's, it's a bad one. But, it's, uh, that, but that, that's impossible because he showed his scars. Um, and, and he appeared to many people at once. It actually says in the Bible to 500 people at one time in one instance so that the hallucination theory, the idea that people just hallucinated, hallucinated seeing him, couldn't be posited. And many other proofs, but it says here by many proofs. So again, Luke is bringing an actual resurrection to Theophilus and to us. Not a metaphorical phoenix-like story about rising from the ashes of our circumstances. That's not Christianity. It's not this idea of, well, re the resurrection didn't really happen, but maybe it's a good story about just kind of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and just, you know, rising like the phoenix and just kind of going after things. That's actually the opposite of Christianity. So if that's a pre uh, like a notion you've had, um, just allow this to kind of correct and speak what, what is actually true about Christianity uh, to you uh, because that's, that's actually contradictory, you could say, uh, to what the, the, true, the true gospel is. So Luke brings an actual resurrection and really, I think, brings Theophilus to a God who is full of love and a God who slayed death for us. And that might be actually the most important thing of all here is that Jesus did, in fact, present himself to people, resurrected. Like, think about that. Isn't that incredible that he took time to do that, that he lovingly revealed himself to people and just showed up. I mean, it, it exudes mercy, I think, and love and care. And, and it just by way of saying, hey, Jesus did this, it tells us that the resurrection should matter to us because otherwise, why appear to anybody? You know, in, in other words, he doesn't just go from resurrection to ascension without the appearances as if his death and resurrection were self-serving entirely. But he first appears to frightened, doubt-filled sinners and says, look, I'm alive. Your salvation can be seen in my scars and now in my living flesh and bone body. In other words, and I said this before, not in the law or the old code of commandments. Because they, see, this is how Jesus is replacing. When he presents himself and says, here I am, and he makes a new covenant or a new testament with people, he shows his body and his scars and his risenness. He doesn't unscroll the Ten Commandments and say, get to work. This is crucial, and this is what communion gets at. We'll talk about that in a minute here as well. But this is crucial to see, to truly and properly understand Christianity, but also not to be crushed under a, a weighty list of do's and don'ts that never worked for Israel, and it certainly won't work for us as well. And he does all this, again, to undergird the idea that it's his work for us that saves us, not our work for him. All right, and that leads me to this third section here, which is a passive, grace-filled language. Um, we talk a lot about this here because it's true, because it gives us joy, because it's gospel-centric, um, so many reasons. But Acts 1, 1 to 5 is like this test case for this idea. Uh, but passive, graceful language. So the idea here is that passivity and grace many times go together in the Bible. Not all, not like 
every single time, but most times. Passivity in a good way. Passivity can be a bad thing, so not the bad version, but just the idea of being in a role of, um, of passivity or reception, being a receiver versus an actor uh, out of things. Passivity and grace many times go together. So not to the exclusion of activity. I mean, we're in a book called Acts, right? So, I mean, the church does a lot by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we'll talk a lot about that in this series. But So not to the exclusion or to denounce the idea of acting or doing things as Christians, but rather as a way to show us that God acts for our good and we don't act for his good. And so there's a ton of examples here in, the, in this. I, I've highlighted the, the main ones. I'll walk through them with you really quick and highlight a couple. Um, but just a few things we see here. I've already talked about how Jesus presented himself to people. And it also says secondarily here, which is related, Jesus appeared to them. So Jesus wasn't found. And actually one of the most important things to understand about Jesus' post-resurrection appearances to people, this is how all of the gospel accounts end, uh, at least most of them, they end with Jesus appearing to people. In every single instance of that happening in the Bible, Jesus is the one who appears to people, not people to Jesus. It's always Jesus chasing down, finding people who are cowering in fear in in a locked room. So sometimes he passes miraculously through locked doors and walls to be with people he loves and to reveal himself raised. Other times he finds them walking down on a road and just depressed because they think he's still dead. Other times he just appears uh, in the breaking of bread and eating of fish with his disciples. But it's always Jesus appearing to people. It's never Jesus or never people finding him and appearing to him. Ever. This is, this is crucial because it, it gets at the idea that God is out to find us who have wandered. It's not on us to find him. Like, there's no GPS here with the blue, like the Jesus app with the blue dots moving around and people are going out to search for him on any level. It never, ever, ever once happens. Why is that, do you think? Why do people never, ever find Jesus in these narratives? Why is it literally every time him finding us? What is he trying to tell us? Right? What is God trying to say here? What is Jesus trying to say in the way that he appears to people? It is to say, no one chooses him, no one finds him. It might feel like that in terms of as we look at like how we became Christians. It might kind of look like that on the, on the sort of the outer look of that. It might look that way, but at the core, Jesus has walked into our heart uninvited and said, I love you. Here I am. You weren't looking for me, but I was looking for you. Believe in me and, and you will be saved. And so we see that here. Jesus presents himself. And he appeared to them. He wants to do this. He wasn't found. Relatedly, the disciples were chosen. And we say this is a a grace-filled, passive language because to be chosen, even the way that I say that linguistically is in the passive voice, right? So we we were chosen. We've been chosen. Um, That that is, and we link choice and love a lot because it's, this is our experience, right? But it's also biblical. Like if you're married, you chose each other. It wasn't like, like a lottery or something, you know, like it wasn't some random, like, whoa, I got Aletha. Aletha's my wife, so. Uh, like, I didn't expect that. You know, like, oh, I knew I was, I mean, I wanted to pursue her. Like, I, want, I chose to marry her, and she chose to, to marry me. Um, so choice and love go together. When it says God chose us, it's not saying we have no choice whatsoever in the matter, like in every sense of the word. It's just saying that God is the, the greater chooser. Like, he chose us, or we chose him because he first chose us, that, that kind of idea. So, but anyway, passive idea. Also going down here is the idea of waiting for the promise of God. So wait, 
That's passive as well. And the promise. So God is the one making promises. In Christianity, we don't make promises or vows to God. We, we never do that. Uh, and if, you, if you've done that, don't do that. Like, confess that and say, I take that back. I can't, we're not people of our word, right? I mean, God is, a, God, is a, God is a God of his word who promises to save us, who vows to do that. And in Hebrews 6, it says he swears on his own name to bless or save people who call upon him through Jesus Christ. Isn't that assuring? God swears on his own name because there's nothing higher than God. You know, like we say, we put our hand on the Bible in a courtroom or we say quippy things like I swear on my mother's grave or something because we're trying to look for something like bigger than ourselves to swear on. But in the Bible it says there's nothing bigger than God. So he says, I swear on my own name and by myself that I will bless you and save you when you call upon me to save you from your sins. So in that capacity, we see him promise here, make promises to save and to send his Holy Spirit, and which again for us is passive, and the idea of waiting is passive. And then again, you will be baptized. I, I said this before, but even linguistically here, this is in the passive voice or form of the verb, right? Not the active voice. So even like narratively we see this, but linguistically as well, there's a lot of passive voice verbs in the Bible when it comes to us. Active form with God primarily more passive forms. In other words, you will be saved, not you will save yourself or will save others or will do the saving, but you will be saved by someone that's objective to you, outside of you. Salvation's not in here. It's, it's out there. It's with God. And so the solution's not in here. It's with, with him. So this is just a few examples, five big things that kind of relate. There's more. Uh, but I, I want it, I mean, I think that the point here is so that it's resoundingly clear that God is doing something. That Jesus is doing something and people are, and people then are receiving it, waiting for it, benefiting from it, but not accomplishing it themselves. So when it says that something's been accomplished, it's not referring to people, it's referring to Jesus, who's a person, but also the Son of God. So Jesus accomplished, we receive and benefit. So it's by grace we're saved, not by works. It's why Jesus actually orders them to wait, which is a really weird thing, I think, right? And this is, like, when you see Jesus orders or commands the disciples, he says to not leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the reception of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that is like, I mean, think about that. And, and think about that through the filter of being like a 21st century American, right? Like, this is the worst motivational speech ever, right? It's terrible. Like, in a TED Talk culture, you know, today, or just think about motivation. Jesus is not a motivational speaker. You know, he's not saying, okay, I lived a good life. Now you guys get after it. You know, go c climb that mountain or climb that ladder or go get that job. You know, that kind of thing. It's not what he does. He says, wait, sit down and do nothing until the Holy Spirit of God comes and fills you. I mean, talk about, you know, kind of countercultural, right? But this is actually... This is actually really good news. This is humbling, but it's really good news at the same time because motivational speeches are self-centered. Weight messages are God-centered. And if there's anything else, I mean, think about it this way. If there's anything else that Jesus said here besides weight, it could be construed as a precondition to salvation, right? But he doesn't. Like, there's no... Pray really hard so that the Holy Spirit will come to you. There's no do good really hard or a lot 
so that the Holy Spirit will come to you. There's no serve the poor so that the Holy Spirit will then be able to come to you because you'll have done enough. Nor is there even a love your neighbor, which is like we talk about love as being this key Christian ethic, and it is. There's a place to talk about that, but it's not even, it doesn't say that. It says to very, very bad men. These aren't good people. The disciples are incredibly sinful, incredibly fearful, terrible theology. They don't understand. They, they're self-centered. They all ran when Jesus was arrested. He's saying to those types, wait, and the Spirit will come to you when he desires, even though you don't deserve it. And I, I've accomplished this reality for you. This is going to happen because I've suffered for you and I've raised myself from the dead and proved it by many proofs. And I'm going to ascend to rule over all evil forever. And so that, that's more for, for next week. But, but this is huge, you know? The idea of waiting. Or maybe think about it this way. God is not waiting for you to get your life together. Have you ever heard that before? Even in the church? God is not waiting for you to get your life together. God never, ever, ever waits for us. Instead, he proactively runs to us to save us. He comes into the world to bleed for us. That's proactive. It never says wait, or, or God waits for us to get our lives in, lives in order. He's patient with us. That's different. He's instead actively working in the world through Jesus to give his life for our unput-together life. And Acts shows us that he's still at work through the church to save people proactively. This is what he's doing in the world, and we see it most clearly now in this epoch or era through the church and in the Bible, in the preaching of the word and the sacraments. Um, this is the, the, not the only, but the primary visual we, and, and means by which God continues to be this, or Jesus continues to be this. One last thing here to consider. Theophilus, let's go back to this guy, interesting name. Theophilus means lover of God. So theos in the Greek uh, is God, and philo is love. And so think of like Philadelphia, you know, Adelphos is brother, city of brotherly love, and then um, phila uh, is, uh, means the love, so city of brotherly love. But um, Theophilus means Lover of God. And so when you look at this word, and a lot of people have written a lot about this, um, some say, some voices say that this means that this book, Acts, is for people who love God. This book is for people who love God. But I completely disagree with that. I mean, one, no one loves God, Romans 3 says, so it's problematic. But, um, but here's a question. If that's true, though, why then is this risen Jesus needed? If Theophilus is actually loving God, like, properly or healthily, why does he need this book at all? Why does he need a resurrection? Why does he need Jesus' scars? I think that Theophilus, then, tells us that something more than vaguely loving God is needed. Instead, we need God to love us. We need an atoning death and a vindicating resurrection. So this book is addressed to a God lover, but notice how it quickly moves on to a God who loved us to hell and back. The center of the faith is not love God, love people, contrary to what you may have heard. The center of Christianity is not love God, love people. That's on us. That's the center of the Old Testament law, which never worked, and it gave way to 
a better law, which wasn't really a law, it was just a gospel or reality that Jesus loved unlovable people. So the center now is Christ's bloody death and resurrection. So, so um, think about it this way. It's almost like Luke then is writing, Theophilus, you may have been told all your life that you were a God-loving, God-fearing man. You know? So, I mean, just think about that for a second. Like, if your name means lover of God, you know, and, like, you screw up or something, are people like, oh, my gosh, you know, do your name, you know, or something? Or maybe they're thinking, he's a hoity-toity guy. He's named lover of God. He must, he just, you know, whatever. He's just a religious guy, and everyone loves him, and blah, blah, blah. So, whatever it is. Like, for his whole life, maybe he was getting these kinds of, like, subtle jabs or something like this. But Luke maybe writes, Theophilus, maybe all your life you were told that you were a God-loving, God-fearing man. Per your name's meaning. But I have good news for you. None of that really matters. There is a God who loves you way more than you love him, infinitely more. And he just died for you, and he just rose for you. Let's talk some more about him. That, I think, is the introduction to Luke, or or Acts. Another way to look at it is Theophilus, being a God lover is not enough. It's not enough. Loving God, loving people is not enough. It was replaced for a reason, and it's too self-centered. The center of the faith is not love God, love people. It's not Theophilus. It moves on from his name to the name above all names, which is Jesus Christ, right? So that even just that kind of linguistic narrative, even like, you know, uh, name etymology, or just like the the meaning of, of names here, that alone just drives us back humbly, but also to the, to the foot of the cross where we don't come. It's not like God is just knighting us with, you are lover of me, you know, and now you are accepted, and you are doing amazing, and your name means something amazing, you know. Like, he's not knighting us. That's not the gospel. Luke wrote 28 chapters that says more than that. 24 and, what's the quick math there? Is that 50? Is that 50? What is that? 52? No. What is it? Is it 52? Okay. Math and pressure don't go together, you know, but (laughs) anyway, 52. 52 chapters on the opposite of that mentality, that loving God is enough. No one really has. And so instead, Luke writes to, like, sort of basically to write something against Theophilus' name and to say, here's something even better for you. Let's talk some about Jesus. All right, so a few things then in conclusion here. Um, Let me read verses 4 and 5 again. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John the Baptist, baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. I I guess if there's something to take away here, guys, and I'll say a couple things here, but um, a suffering and, this is Jesus, of course, but a suffering and a resurrection that benefits us. This is the core. Christianity is not about God flattering or affirming people, but about him saving them. It's, it's a story of a God who became human in order to die for humans. To use Luke's word, he accomplished closeness with sinners through his shed blood. He accomplished it. And this is partly, I think, what baptism of the Holy Spirit means. I'll, I'll talk more about this in coming weeks, the Holy Spirit and and, and baptism and Pentecost, that's going to be delved into deeper. But 
This is partly what being baptized by the Holy Spirit means. Baptism actually means, uh, linguistically, it means to immerse completely. So think of like a, a heavy cloth. You're just in a huge, you know, bat or whatever, a bastion of water. It's kind of dipping it in. It's spilling out, you know, like it's just immersing completely or deluging uh, cloth into like a, a bat of water or dye or something like that. That's what baptism means, baptizo in, in the Greek. And so, so spirit baptism then, when it says you are water baptized, but now you're going to be baptized in a way that that baptism pointed to. You're going to be, you're going to be like, as a sinner, immersed and deluged completely by an all-encompassing grace. This is the idea of spirit baptism, where the gospel starts to make sweet sense all of a sudden, where we become newly created and where I think the curtain-tearing reality, remember back in Luke 23, the curtain-tearing reality actually comes to a head. No more separation between God and us. So it's not just an idea, but the Holy Spirit actually envelops and encompasses and lives within. This is true if you're a Christian today. You're lived in now by the Holy Spirit of God. There's like no more metaphysical or any kind of theological or any different or any separation. No more exile from him, to use another biblical idea and phrase and word. No more separation, exile. It's like when the Holy Spirit comes into us, it's the seal or sign that we are his people. And Jesus' death worked. And his resurrection actually worked. And so there's no imperative here, guys, but um, I just encourage you, wherever you're at spiritually today, um, Christian or not, like, let the language of this passage wash over you afresh or for the first time. And it might be, like, instructive in some ways. Like, you're thinking, I didn't know that that was the center of the faith. I didn't know that Jesus' death had to be actual, historical, physical, or I didn't know that was the center, or, man, a lot is left out, or something like that, or maybe whatever it is. Or it's corrective. Like, it could be, like, you had competing viewpoints about Christianity that, God is lovingly saying, actually, that's not true, and this is instead true. This is what I'm really like. And then I think, you know, we always say this, or at least imply this, but Jesus is alive in these words. Like when we read the Bible together, when it's preached or read or prayed through or um, sung, uh, he's alive in these words to tell us what he's like and what the gospel is. His death and resurrection accomplished something. He wasn't, in other words, Jesus wasn't a magician who performed tricks for our entertainment. But rather, he was a savior who performed miracles for our benefit. So, like, he healed the deaf so they could hear. He later died for the sinner, the spiritually deaf, so they could be with God and hear his voice again. See, it benefits. It doesn't just happen. It's not a trick, not a circus. Like, well, watch this now. Watch me turn this water into wine. Oof, you know, like, it, it, it benefited, it told a story. It glorified his name. It made us realize it's not about us. It drew us to follow him all the way to Jerusalem where he would, by us, I mean, collectively here, inclusively, but us just being like the disciples and all those people in the stories, follow him to Jerusalem to watch him die on the cross because that's the culmination of history and the end game to the whole of the biblical narrative. So Christian in the room, remember this Jesus and be filled with joy. And to those of you who aren't Christians yet, believe in this Jesus and you will be saved. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for um, 
thank you for Acts. Um, looking forward to this. I, I pray as a church, God, we would be uh, ready and um, just willing to hear and to be taught and corrected and informed on things that maybe we just were never aware of or um, had just some bad information on or something. But um, tell us what you're like. Uh, I pray for these next 13 months together. Tell us what you're like and inform us what the gospel is and what it isn't. Uh, show us, God, through story, uh, but also through careful analysis and scientific ways of writing. Show us what the resurrection really meant. Uh, show us what the church is. Show us how you use martyrdom and suffering and death, just like Jesus's, to bring about great good in, in the world. And show us many more things, uh, God, in this series. Change our church and our lives, and we just pray for more people to understand this and hear this. Uh, none of us deserve it. None of, none of us have found this. We're just poster children for grace and evidence that, man, the Holy Spirit must really be at work because not so great people are being saved all the time. And not very smart people, not very intelligent people, not very good people, not very kind people, not very clean people. Um, as, as your word says all over the place, uh, man, it's good news. But we pray for, pray for more of that and for thankfulness in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Guys, a couple quick things on the rest of our service.